Oh, I am so excited. Guys, let's talk about, wait for it, millennials. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 5, but not the original episode 5. Poor, worthless millennials. I'm honestly so excited. This is, uh, you know, dumb millennials always being ironic. This is unironic, guys. Really excited. So let's start with a little bit of uh, show housekeeping. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to try to calm myself down for a second. Serious housekeeping. A couple things. Let me think. Number one, I'm going to do my damnedest to post this on Friday. So less than a week after I posted the last one, because I think I would like to get on a every Friday schedule instead of a every Monday or like every other Monday or sometimes some Tuesdays. I'm going to try to make this like a work week thing where I I want to make my weekends a time to sort of reflect and play around with ideas and then spend, you know, a few hours in the evenings, whatever, getting something done for Fridays. It also then allows you to hopefully listen to it at your leisure on your weekends, although we all know time has no meaning right now. But anyways, that's what I'm thinking. Point two, I have a couple uh, interviews scheduled for the next couple weeks. Not exactly scheduled yet, but sort of agreed to in theory by a couple different parties. I don't want to give it away. It's going to be really fun. Going to be talking a little bit about other parts of Eastern Washington and then also going to be talking about jail guys with some jail experts, jail spurts. And then also talking about immigration with some immigration experts. Whew, okay, enough of that. Millennials, you dumb, sad, unemployed, unemployable, don't got no money, still somehow spend all your money on avocado toast, can't work hard for nothing, can't find work for nothing. Idiots. How many good, wholesome American industries have you monsters killed? Let's just do a random Google News search of millennials are killing. What do we got? Killing the, let's count here, automobile industry, diamond industry, killing napkins. What did napkins ever do to you? Marmalade, why are you racist against British people and old people? Fabric softener, why do you hate soft clothes? Is it because it feels like comfort is an illusion? You big babies. The bar soap industry, (laughs) that just seems like innovation. Body wash is better. Uh, Millennials are disrupting the get dirt off your body industry. Normal ass yogurt, preferred Greek yogurt. Is that just because you're all socialists? Here's some free marketing advice, General Mills. Just rename YoPlay Bernie Sandgurt. And you'll uh, you'll get that market share right back, buds. <laughs> Wine corks. I don't even. <laughs> there was seriously an article talking about how millennials are killing wine corks. <laughs> There's not even a joke. It's just a joke in itself. This one said millennials are killing the NBA. Well, maybe if the NBA was as exciting as esports, wouldn't have this problem. Uh, macro brews. I mean, that's just like. I have $6 to my name. I might as well drink one good beer instead of a hundred terrible beers. I mean, it might've been fun for you boomers to sit around listening to Jefferson Airplane drinking 150 Miller Genuine Drafts or you Gen Xers to, you know, crack open what was it like a Pabst or something and watch Reality Bites with your friends. Seems like millennials just like to get a little bit buzzed then maybe chase it with a homemade kombucha from a SCOBY that was passed down through their gender studies department because that's the degree they got. 
But yeah, you know, they just want to sip one good beer while they await the sweet embrace of death. Okay, I'll only do one more. They're killing the golf industry because, quote unquote, hiking is outdoors and free. (laughs) Dude, cannot fault you there, millennials. Holy cow. Golf. Dumb. Gosh, Luke, it sure seems like you are agreeing with a lot of these millennials universally reviled lifestyle decisions. Well, yeah, I mean, this is hard to say, but um, people actually seem to like when I got a little personal last episode. So maybe let's just do it again here. Uh, By some measures, I am... In fact, a millennial. I was born January 14th, 1981, which, you know, depending on how you slice it, is either the oldest possible millennial, the youngest possible Gen Xer. Back in just the simpler, simpler times of, say, 2006, people called us cuspers, which kind of also has a trigger warning vibe to it. But yeah, if you've come for the millennials, you've come for me. Okay, two quick caveats here. The first caveat is I don't feel, because I'm a cusper, like I have gotten the full brunt of the millennial experience, and I use brunt very uh, purposefully there. <laughs> Although, actually, the, the article we're about to read that sort of inspired this whole silly episode so far actually suggests that maybe I am more of a millennial than I thought I was. But anyways, I've never felt like a real millennial because I sort of slid into the job market just before shit hit the fan in 2008. So I haven't faced a lot of the same hardships that millennials have faced. Okay. Point number two, generations are stupid. And I just gave one example of why they're stupid. They're arbitrary numbers based on whenever we started counting up generations and people generally like add 16 or 20 years, depending on like the average reproductive age of a woman in Roman times or something. I don't even know how 16 or 20 years was decided to be a quote unquote generation. And I don't really want to look it up either because generations are dumb. They don't actually mean anything in objective terms. But I guess three, we can't get away from generations because meaning is socially constructed and we've all decided that generations mean something. So screw it. I guess we have to deal with it. But as a shorthand, you know, just a shorthand, it's not any worse, an arbitrary way to group people. And in some ways, insofar as it is chronologically based and a lot of generational talk is concerned both with culture and economics there are worse ways to arbitrarily group people i guess because you know if we all grew up watching the simpsons and all entered the job market right before it crashed it would make sense that both culturally we have similar tastes and economically we've had serious advantages or hardships or whatever But even as I say that, I know a lot of people that didn't grow up watching The Simpsons because they went to the same church I went to and you were not allowed to watch The Simpsons, boy. I snuck it. Sorry, mom and dad. I do think there is a a teeny bit of validity to grouping chronologically when we're talking about the economy because the quote unquote economy, the, you know, the invisible hand of the market is a pretty totalizing force. It does affect people at a generational level across the board. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But then you also then have to be very very careful to uh, slice it up demographically and stuff, which which happens in this article. So we'll talk about the demographic nuance within this big generational shit show we call the millennials. But you could also slice the pie any way you wanted. It's purely arbitrary that the millennials are roughly 1980 to roughly 2000. And the efficacy of grouping people by huge 20-year cohorts is probably actually getting 
less and less valuable as culture speeds up and lately the pace of economic catastrophe speeds up. So maybe we might be wanting to look at like micro cohorts rather than full generations. I don't know. But again, we have the generations we have and they get talked about, especially in, you know, in the public square, in journalism and in other contexts in a way that like they're immutable and the boundaries are hard, even though they're not really. But that's how we talk about them. So that's kind of how we have to keep talking about them, at least here, because I'm not interested in trying to upend the idea of generations. That sounds exhausting. All right. So that was all a preamble to this week, Washington Post. Millennials, we got a little good news. Not like good news, good news, but more like if you've been feeling like you've had it harder than every other generation, but you've been feeling also simultaneously gaslit by people just telling you that you're a dumb, stupid idiot who doesn't work hard enough. Well, it turns out the data says you are being gaslit by all of society. Millennials do have it, in fact, much, much harder than any other generation, including the quote unquote lost generation. The generation so abjectly screwed, whoever names generations was just like, yeah, uh, yeah, let's just name them that. Those were the poor souls who came up right around the time of World War One and were gaslit in a different way. Well, first they were literally gassed. And then when they formed deep lifelong trauma about it, they were told that they had quote unquote battle fatigue and just to suck it up and get back to society. Okay, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Can you tell that I'm very, very excited? So good news, millennials, your life sucks exactly as much as you think it sucks. So says data journalist, Andrew Van Dam, who has an Idaho connection, actually. I might actually try to get him on the pod at some point if he, I don't know any of his other work, but he used to work down in Boise. He's now a staff writer at the Washington Post, and he, on May 27th, wrote, The unluckiest generation in U.S. history, subhead, millennials have faced the worst economic odds, and many will never recover. Like I said, super good news. The article begins, after accounting for the present crisis, the average millennial has experienced slower economic growth since entering the workforce than any other generation in U.S. history. Millennials will bear these economic scars the rest of their lives in the form of lower earnings, lower wealth, and delayed milestones such as homeownership. Does that sound like anybody in the audience? The losses are particularly acute on the jobs front. One brutal month of the coronavirus set the labor market back to the turn of the millennium. The last time there were about 131 million jobs was January 2000. For millennials who came of age then, it's as if all the plotting expansions and jobless recoveries of their namesake epoch evaporated in weeks. So yeah, I remember January 2000, I was literally drinking beers at the Hamilton Inn uh, out by the airport celebrating Y2K as a 18-year-old freshman in college. If that sounds like the sort of thing you could make fun of me for the next time you see me, it is absolutely not. Everyone was reenacting strange days. It was super normal. Van Dam continues, the milestones will get even more dire in the next jobs report, but for now, the economic regression back to Y2K is a fitting symbol for a generation that, more than any other, has been shaped by recession. Okay, now I want to back up to the first graph that was a little bit higher up the article. And I'm going to post a link to this article so you can look at it and follow along if you want. But it charts economic growth over the course of the lives of various generations from 18 to 33 years old. So economic growth for boomers, for the GI generation, the silent generation, Gen Xers, us, between the when we were 18 years old and 33 years old. So that it's a, it's a somewhat apples to apples comparison. 
I should say that for the purposes of this article, they're slicing millennials as 1981 to 1996, Gen X from 65 to 1980, and boomers from 1946 to other generations like again this is just completely arbitrary stuff but it doesn't matter we won't really be talking about the transcendental generation as much as i love henry david thoreau and the second great awakening which was like a massive protestant revival the transcendentalists i think give the transcendental generation its name makes sense but back to this graph okay so of all the population growth for all the generations who were coming of age. So the, for the, basically the first 15 years of their adult lives, the GI generation, 1901 to 1924, experienced a 60% growth in the economy. Think about that. You start off with 100 economies, you end up with 160 economies. That is a ton of growth in just 15 years. And actually, it's way bigger than even the second generation, which was the silent generation born 1925 to 1945, which had just under 40, maybe like 38% growth. Still, it's a big growth. It's like almost it's almost half again as much growth. So again, not too shabby. And a bunch of generations are sort of packed into the almost 30 to almost 40% growth line. So the silent generation, then the boomers, again, our famous boomers, are the third highest. The progressive era, which was the mid-1800s, then Gen X at about roughly, I would say, 32%, again, 1965 to 1980. And then the, <laughs> the missionary generation, which was... Uh, sort of mid to late 1800s. And that's missionary cultural genocide and actual genocide, not missionary like position. So their growth was fueled by like westward expansion and stuff like that. Okay, the bottom cohort, which besides millennials doesn't have a generation more recent than 1900. So those transcendental generations that I talked about, 1792 to 1821 at about 20% growth, the Gilded Age generation also at uh, about 20% growth. So that's 1822 to 1842. Think about the Gilded Age for a second. We think of that as massive amounts of wealth, right? Why was there such low economic growth? Let's put a pin in that for later. Then there's the lost generation, like I talked about, 1883 to 1900, the generation that time just forgot. And then below that, by like a percentage or two, at I would guess, yeah, let's say 15% growth, millennials. 15% growth in 15 years is nothing. So I don't want to belabor the point, but let's just think about a couple things. The GI generation is had four times greater growth than the millennial generation and at basically 33% more growth. So basically, you know, we had 15% growth. The transcendental generation had 20% growth. So 5% more growth uh, in 1792 to 1821 than the uh, millennial generation. One of the reasons that's kind of bitterly funny is that the transcendental generation was born before the Industrial Revolution in America. <laughs> the first water-powered cotton mill was opened in 1793. So how did that industrial revolution go? Did it just like take off like a like a shot out of the blocks? Uh, not exactly. Results were sort of mixed. 
For example, in 1798, Eli Whitney, the guy who invented the cotton gin and really superpowered slavery, he obtained a government contract to manufacture 10,000 muskets in less than two years. Three years later, he had failed to produce a single musket and was called to Washington to justify his use of treasury funds. So yeah, it wasn't like the Industrial Revolution just really took off. And despite that, the transitioning agrarian economy of the Americas (laughs) just mops the floor with the economic growth during the millennial generation. So yeah, trying to anticipate a little bit of pushback from my buddies, the Gen Xers or the boomers. Like, oh, how much worse could it be? A bunch of damn farmers putting gun stocks on backwards, you know, blowing up their faces with gunpowders like a Looney Tunes cartoon had better economic growth than us. Okay, back to the article again for you uh, older generations who were like, oh, these losses were probably symbolic. Quote, the losses weren't merely symbolic. This recession steamrolled younger workers just as millennials were entering their prime working years. The oldest millennials are nearing 40, while the youngest are in their mid-20s. Millennial employment plunged by 16% in March and April this year, our calculations show. That's faster than either Gen X at 12% or the baby boomers at 13%. Proportionally, the even younger generation, known as Zoomers, suffered worse than all of them. A third of their jobs vaporized in two months in 2020, but Gen Z is only just entering the labor force. The oldest Zoomers are in their early 20s, so their losses won't be as large in absolute terms. So what does that mean? Well, if this course continues, the Zoomers will probably be even worse than the millennial generation. So our our time at the top of the absolute saddest, most pathetic uh, wretch generation might be short. Once the Zoomers have been in the job market for 15 years, so when, you know, President Trump's in his fourth or fifth term, <laughs> assuming newspapers are still around, or it might just be like holographs and printed on the inside of our eyeballs. Whatever the successor to the Washington Post might be, could very well be writing the same article saying, oh, turns out Gen Z is the most abject, unluckiest generation in U.S. history. Because, spoiler alert, the millennials haven't suffered one huge depression. We've suffered cycles and cycles and cycles of recession, which, turns out, is worse. Let's count them down. Number one, the dot-com bust of the early aughts. Remember how I told you I was a failed math and computer science major? One of the ways I got my parents to let me change to English, I told them, hey, you know the thing I want to be, computer programmer, the thing you don't really understand, but you're supportive of? Well, the whole industry blew up because it did. It was a convenient, but very, very real excuse. Oh, and then there was the recession that happened right after 9-11. And then of course, there was the housing crisis of 2008, the so-called Great Recession. And now we have the one we're currently going through, which incidentally, it's fascinating that this Washington Post story is happening now about two months in to this recession because it could conceivably get much, much worse, couldn't it? And I don't know about you, but right now I don't really see that cyclical nature of a recession every few years changing. Like put yourself in the shoes of your average millennial who has, even if you're the oldest possible millennial, you've lived through now four recessions in your adult lifetime. Is it any wonder that there's a little bit of nihilism going on here? And if we're the generation that coined the term black pill, the idea that life is ultimately unfair and that winners and losers are determined for the most part by circumstances beyond one's control, to quote from Urban Dictionary. Can you really blame us? I mean, it's like, why should I live in history, huh? This is a world where nothing is solved. Someone once told me time is a flat circle. Everything we've ever done or will do, we're going to do over and over and over again. 
So that was a Gen Xer writing dialogue for a character that I guess is technically a boomer, but I mean, I'm ready to call it right now. Rust Cole, True Detective Season 1, you are the archetypal millennial. Okay, so coronavirus hit millennials hard. How hard did it hit them? Andrew Van Dam writes, at the beginning of 2019, millennials became the largest generation in the U.S. full-time workforce, surpassing Gen X. But the coronavirus crisis walloped millennials so disproportionately that they're probably giving the top generational spot back to Gen X in the next month or two. Again, we don't even know how bad it's gotten yet, but it's going to be so disproportionately bad for millennials, we're going to no longer be the top full-time workforce cohort anymore. It's going to be people that are a lot older than us. Van Dam continues, Gray Kimbrough, an economist with American University who we've previously and accurately branded a serial millennial myth debunker, that's a hell of a job to have, points out that the oldest millennial, such as himself, lived through the 9-11 terrorist attacks and entered the labor market in the recession that hit around the same time. They spent their early years struggling to find work during a jobless recovery, only to be hit by the Great Recession and another jobless recovery, and of course, yet another recession. The story here is that it's not a bad recession and that it's hitting young people more, but that it's hitting people who have already been hit, Kimbrough said. Because oopsie daisy, section headline, millennials never recovered from the Great Recession. The Great Recession pushed young workers a few steps down the wage ladder. Research shows they never recovered. Even as their older colleagues regained all the ground they'd lost, it's happening again to many of the same younger workers. In a 2019 working paper, Census Bureau economist Kevin Rins used regional differences in the Great Recession's severity to calculate that while millennial unemployment recovered from the Great Recession within a decade, millennial earnings never did. Building on earlier work from the University of California at Berkeley's Danny Yagen, Rins based his findings on more than a dozen years of annual data for more than 4.1 million people in a government database. And this actually seems to have hit Gen X as well, not quite as bad as the millennials, but close. Millennials lost their jobs, then got their jobs back, but didn't regain the earnings. They are still, as of like 2017, 10% below average, whereas before the recession, they were maybe like 4% above average. Van Dam writes, thanks to the Great Recession, the average millennial lost about 13% of their earnings between 2005 and 2017, Rins found. That's worse than Gen X's 9% setback and almost double the 7% loss faced by baby boomers. By the end of the period, baby boomer earnings had recovered, even as millennials remained well below where they should have been. Millennials suffering through high unemployment during the recession ended up less likely to work for high-paying employers and less likely to complete as much education as workers in places where the recession didn't hit as hard. They had to settle for worse jobs early in their careers, depressing their lifetime earnings potential. The employer side changed too, Rins finds. Big employers in the hardest hit areas consolidated power over labor markets and in turn offered less to young workers who had few other options. If people enter the labor force during a recession, they get into lower paying jobs that carries forward for much of their lifelong working career, said Anna Kent, a policy analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. That's going to have impacts on not only their income, but their wealth and also their ability to save for a down payment and their ability to meet other lifetime goals. So notice that they aren't saying company profits also stayed low. They're just saying people who entered the workforce at this time sort of had to suck it up and take lower paying jobs. And that's carried with them, even whether or not company profits rebounded. New section header, you ready? They weren't ready for another one. 
Millennials had much less of a financial cushion than previous generations did at their age, Kent said, even though they had been doing many things right. Wait, so it hasn't all been avocado toast? Millennials are getting married later and having children later, and at an age when boomers and Gen X were building equity, millennials have no housing net worth, Kimbrough's analysis of Federal Reserve data show. Then there's a tweet from Kimbrough embedded into the article where there's a graph with like, baby boomers take a big dip during the Great Recession. The Gen Xers take a slightly smaller dip during the Great Recession. The millennial real estate wealth curve craters and never recovers. They're like literally just is no millennial wealth curve, at least as regards real estate. Yet, and here's where some myth debunking happens, millennials spend within their means more so than Gen X or boomers did at the same age, Kent's analysis of separate Federal Reserve data show. That is, they're more likely to spend less than they earn, and 52% of millennials were saving for retirement at age 34. At that age, just 42% of boomers had retirement savings. Quote, this narrative of, oh, you should just work harder, sink or swim by your own effort. It's very American, but it ignores the fact that the tide is much stronger now and many millennials are swimming upstream, Kent said. Okay, so the too long didn't read version of that, if you feel like your career has been stunted, you are absolutely valid in feeling that way. It absolutely has. And if it feels like it's harder for you to catch up, maybe impossible to catch up, it's because the current is dragging against you so much harder than it was for your parents or your grandparents, and even for the guy who supercharged slavery. Um, so has this trend affected every millennial equally? Uh, no, it hasn't actually. Thanks for asking. That's a good question. The final section of the article actually addresses that. So good timing with that question. It's a relatively short section, but I'm going to take it pretty slow because, well, it's the place institutional racism enters our narrative. Section headline, more educated, more diverse, more vulnerable. Millennials are the most educated, most diverse generation in history, at least until Zoomers pass them. Those distinctions come with burdens. William Gale, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, said millennials' rising debt burden outstrips gains they have made in education. Their parents and public authorities funded less of their college education than previous generations, Gale added. That's compounded by the large African-American and Hispanic millennial populations. As these groups continue, continue, to suffer the effects of generations of systemic discrimination. The wealth gap between black and white households continues to grow, even after controlling for differences in age, education, marital status, and even income, Gail found. So think about that for a second. Even when an average black person and an average white person, or you know, extrapolate that out to the population, even when black people and white people have the same level of income, black people have less wealth because of the generational aspect of the way wealth is accumulated, right? And those wealth disparities are growing because that's the way wealth accumulates, right? Wealth begets more wealth. So if you're on an even playing field in terms of income, but you start out with less wealth, all other things being equal, that person who started with greater wealth, their wealth is even going to grow faster than your wealth could possibly accumulate if you're starting with less or maybe starting with none. Or in the case of most first generation college students, starting with negative net worth because you have a shitload of student loans because mommy and daddy couldn't pay for college. So that's where people of color, but also poor white people get the shit end of both of those sticks the systemic generational lack of wealth is still a problem to them in the way that it was for their parents and for their grandparents, but they're also also 
part of a cohort that has less economic opportunity than any other in history. Van Dam quotes Kent here. Not every single millennial is going to be doing more poorly, Kent said. The 29-year-old points to herself as an example. She identifies as Hispanic, a category that's been hit disproportionately hard by the downturn, but her PhD and white-collar job insulated her from a crisis that first hammered less educated workers in the service industry. Quote, some millennials, particularly those who are black, Hispanic, or women, or who have less than a bachelor's degree, were already financially vulnerable going into the pandemic, Kent wrote earlier this week. Nationally, about 12% of all workers couldn't cover a $400 emergency expense, even with the help of family or credit cards, according to Kent's analysis of Federal Reserve data. The 12% number holds for non-Hispanic white millennials, but the figure leaps to 32% for non-Hispanic black millennials, 20% for Hispanic millennials, and 17% for millennials women. For all millennials with less than a bachelor's degree, the figure is 25%. Quote, even after so many years of economic expansion, they're still below where we'd expect them to be, Kent told us. So a quarter of our generation, if they didn't go to college, can't afford a $400 emergency expense, even with the help of their parents or credit cards. Just take a second to think about how horrible that is, how gut-wrenching it would be to live like that day to day. And then remember that other data point that we brought up in the very first episode where I was talking about how gut-wrenching it was for a lot of people to live day-to-day, that 61% of all Americans, all Americans, 61% could not afford a $1,000 emergency. So while millennials are doing uniquely bad, there is a lot of suffering to go around. And maybe, just maybe, a point of commonality where we could start imagining a broader struggle, almost like a class struggle of people of all generations just standing up and demanding more. Okay, so after saying that millennials are disproportionately incapable of covering even a minor emergency and then saying that Hispanic millennials, black millennials, millennials with less than a bachelor's degree are even more likely to get kicked in the teeth, the article ends simply. Van Dam writes, not coincidentally, Kent's analysis of labor department data shows Hispanic workers, women, and the less educated are overrepresented among unemployed millennials during the pandemic. So at first I was kind of like, eh, kind of a lackluster way to end. But then all of a sudden I feel like I'm sick to my stomach and I can't breathe very well. Kind of like I'm in a Kung Fu movie and I just got hit with the touch of death. The touch of death is positive energy emanating from the palm of the hand. Bruce Lee. Because holy shit, it's starting all over again. The people that were absolutely destroyed by the last three recessions are going to get destroyed again. (laughs) So now at the end of this episode, maybe I'm a little less hyped than I was at the beginning of the episode, because although it's cool to have your lived experience validated by something like the Washington Post, and maybe hopefully eventually the entire culture is at large, millennials aren't lazy. They actually work harder and they save more and they do all the quote unquote right things better than Gen X does. Gen X is behind in retirement savings compared to millennials, for example. It's still going to keep happening, so we're still going to suffer. Having society acknowledge that you're suffering isn't enough, and I don't know what to do about it. Okay, so it is very close to summer. I am a very pale person, very susceptible to heat, and I'm realizing that my awesome new attic office is like a broiler. So I'm going to try to wrap this up pretty quickly so that I can get it out into the world before I uh, die of heat stroke and everybody goes home for their weekend, not weekend. But I did want to kind of contextualize this article with a couple other pieces. 
briefly because we've just heard that it's already bad. It's going to continue to be bad. It might even get worse because, you know, our unemployment rate at the moment is higher than it was during the Great Depression. So how would we solve this? I actually have no idea, but I found some data that maybe points at it. Okay, so let's go back into the memory hole and look at two generations right next to each other. First being the Gilded Age, which again, or the Gilded Generation, named after the age that was so opulent, they literally called it Gilded. And despite that opulence, had some of the worst economic growth in American history, just barely better than the millennials at right around 20%. And let's contrast that with, oh, I don't know, just pick one out of the hat, the progressive era. So the one that happened right after the Gilded Age, the progressive era, which is the fourth highest at nearly, I would say 35% growth. The only generations that beat the progressive era are literally the three generations that benefited the most from World War II. So the GI generation, who were probably the boomers of the World War II generation, the silent generation who fought World War II, and the boomers, their children. So those three generations benefited massively from the World War II boom and the post-war boom where we took all of our industrial capacity that we had used to making, you know, war machines and turned that into, you know, creating the economy we have today, building the suburbs, building the interstate system, just really massively taking an economic engine designed to defeat the Nazis and just turning it inward to create this expansive and unsustainable period of growth. So besides that period, the progressive era saw the most economic growth. Okay, so PBS, American Experience, would you paint a picture for me of what the Gilded Age was like? During the Gilded Age, Americans feel quite certainly that they are the vanguard of civilization and progress. There's an enormous period of opportunity and possibility and hope. No group felt more confident about the future than the guests who would gather for the party at the luxurious Waldorf Hotel. The evening's total price tag, according to newspaper reports, was enough to feed nearly a thousand working class families for a full year. What? Defenders noted that the ball stood to benefit the entire city. Critics begged to differ. With all the people, warned one minister, who have to lie awake nights contriving to spend their time and their money, and all the others who lie awake wondering how they may get food, there is danger in the air. It was a fractious time in which a sense of desperation amidst growing wealth was emerging. Damn, sound like any time period you know? First of all, American Experience is amazing. That specific episode is amazing. You should watch it just to understand a little bit more at at like a very awesome sort of deep but digestible level, uh, the American Experience, pretty well-named program. But okay, how does the wealth of a generation where a single party could feed a thousand families for a year, how does that compare with the sort of wealth inequality we see today? Because 
spoiler alert, what we're talking about here is wealth inequality as a one cause, not the only cause, but one cause of this economic stagnation we're seeing. Well, the hard thing is that in the 1800s, the late 1800s, there wasn't actually taxes. There wasn't income tax the way we think of them today. So it's very hard to gauge how much money people made, how much wealth they had as a result of that. There's an article in Time that I'm going to link to as well that will explain that. But the answer is we don't really know, at least not exactly. But here's a peek. By the time of that 1897 ball, the one that's in the documentary, the richest 4,000 families in the U.S., representing less than 1% of the population, had about as much wealth as the other 11.6 families altogether. Sorry, 11.6 million families altogether. There were about 60 million people in America at that time as of the 1890 census. So 11 million families is, you know, I don't know, somewhere between a quarter and half of the population, depending on how big families are. They were bigger back then. So basically 4,000 families have as much wealth as a quarter to a half of the American population. How does that compare to today? We are on our way to our first trillionaire, Jeff Bezos. What does it look like now? That same 1% now owns 38.5% of the country's wealth as of 2016. Well, that's just a random number floating out in space. How does that compare to other things? Well, it's more than the bottom 40% who own less than a percent. It's more than the middle 20% who own only 4% of the world's wealth. This is where we're going to start seeing ourselves in here. And then even the upper middle class 20% of America only have 11% of the wealth. So the top 1% own close to 40, the bottom 80% have just barely 15% of the wealth. You can even add the next 10%, the next wealthiest 10%, and not even get past the top 1%. So the top 1% has more wealth than the top 90% of America. Even the rich people, even people you and I would think of as rich. It's an almost unfathomably, I can't even pronounce that word, it's almost an unfathomably massive amount of money. It has led inequality.org, bet those guys are fun at parties, to declare that the U.S. has returned to Gilded Age levels. I should probably just do a deep dive on this entire article on inequality.org, or it's just basically a fact sheet. It's uh, gut-wrenching and fascinating, but I also think I need to do less data for a little while. We're going to start doing these interviews. It's going to be fun. We're going to be talking with actual people. It's not just going to be me all the time, (laughs) me and numbers, for God's sake. But holy God, it's getting hot up here. So I was going to talk about the progressive era, but let's just too long didn't read that and say that when people actually started getting taxed, inequality went down and growth went up. Okay, cool. Now let's really talk about the era that our beloved boomers got the benefit of the tail end of the basically the war and post-war boom. So taxation starts to hit around the time of the Great Depression. This is FDR. Uh, Inequality as a result of that takes a dip from the top 1% having 200 times the bottom 90% income to down to like 100 times the bottom 90% income. So the rich people are still incredibly rich, but they are as a as a factor of poor people's uh, income, it's half, right? So the New Deal era, all of a sudden income inequality is halved. And just to be super clear, now we're talking about income, not wealth. Income is like what you make every year. Wealth is the accumulated wealth you have, obviously. So a second ago, we were talking about wealth. Now we're talking about income. Mixing those up would make this even more confusing. I realized I was actually confusing myself until I realized that. (laughs) Sitting up here just cooking in my own juices, being like, these numbers don't make any sense. What were we talking about? Oh yeah, income inequality. So during the New Deal era, income inequality dips and it stays pretty flat. And then 
you know, December 7th, 1941, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, the U.S. gets drawn into the war, and all of a sudden, literally by 1942, inequality drops almost by half again. So from the wealthiest 1% having 100 times the income of the bottom 90%, it's down to like 60 times. And it stays there. Progressive taxation keeps up all through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, such that income inequality goes from, you know, the low 50s, it even goes down for a period of literally almost 40 years. Rich people have 50 times as much income as the bottom poorest people, the top 1% versus the bottom 90%. That multiplier goes down to where by, say, 1950, the wealthiest 1% Oh God, holy shit. I just realized I was reading this wrong. It's the t- it's the wealthiest 0.1%. So literally we're talking about in, in 2020, we're talking about 32,000 people make 200 times more than the average salary of the bottom 90%. Can you help contextualize 32,000 for me, Luke? 32,000 people is Pullman. What if, imagine if the city of Pullman (laughs) had a 200 times greater income on average than, what would that be, 290 million Americans? It's hard to even wrap your head around. The bottom 90% includes very wealthy people. It's basically everybody. It basically includes everybody, except the absolute most wealthy. Okay, so this is what this means. You take Bill Gates, you take Mark Zuckerberg, you take... Elon Musk, you take, obviously you take Jeff Bezos because he's going to be our first trillionaire. You take probably dipshits like Peter Thiel. You you average out their yearly income, the top 1%. Nope, did it again. I meant top 0.1%, 32,000 richest people in America. And then you average out the income of the bottom 90%, which again includes millionaires, multimillionaires. Average both of those groups independently. And then you divide the richest by the rest. And it turns out the richest, just like in the Gilded Age, make over 200 times the average of the bottom 90%. It's like when the unemployment graph just like went straight off and like exploded out of the top of the chart. That's the sort of the massive multiplier we're talking about here. It's almost unfathomable. It's like you, this, the human mind can't even comprehend numbers that large. And those large numbers are compounding every single year, starting, you know, with Reagan in the 80s when inequality starts going back up. Actually started with Carter, which is a whole other story, a story called neoliberalism. But banks get deregulated, union power drops, union participation drops, right to work starts happening. There's all this this massive regulatory confluence that takes the, the historical low of income inequality distribution in the late 1970s and pushes it just inexorably our enti- my entire life and even a little bit before I was born toward where we're back at gilded age levels of income inequality every single year with no end in sight. And when I say no end in sight, it's because there were regulatory actions taken at the end of all of these really unequal periods in our history to actually take wealth from the wealthy and give it back to all of us. And absent that, inequality didn't budge and in a lot of cases it got worse. So let's go back to the war and post-war era just really briefly to where 
income inequality is at its historic lowest. In the history of America, it's historic lowest. It was also the period in which there was the greatest growth. And we know that part of that was just because of the war and then the post-war boom. But you can't create a consumer economy without consumers. And so that's why you had profound noted racists, (laughs) that's just incidental, like Henry Ford, paying people a living wage so that they could afford to buy the cars they were making, right? You're only going to be able to sell your cars if there are enough people to buy them. And you know, that's still true for like Apple and other product-based companies, but we're mostly a service economy now in terms of employment. And really, I would say in terms of wealth, it seems like we're mostly a finance economy. We're a financialization economy. The majority of people making insane amounts of money in this world aren't running restaurants and they aren't even running restaurant chains. They're running the financial institutions that leverage those sorts of places. There's layers of abstraction to gaining wealth that isn't as direct as when notorious racist Henry Ford was trying to figure out how to sell as many cars as possible. So there's probably very, very little incentive if there was ever really an incentive, but even less now for that top 0.1% of people to actually do right by the rest of America. Because there are no Henry Fords anymore. The closest person is Elon Musk, and he's selling a luxury product. So he doesn't actually need his workers to buy his Teslas. And he probably doesn't want them anywhere near his rockets. So if there's not going to be any business person pragmatism helping drive down inequality, even at the margins, then we're just going to have to lean on that good old-fashioned time-tested method of extracting money from the wealthiest people, the exploiters of all of us. We've said it before on this pod. Can you say it with me again? Taxing the shit out of rich people. But again, there's zero backbone in Washington outside of Bernie Sanders and the squad, maybe. And so I think it's going to take us forcing the issue, man. It's going to take us forcing the issue so that we just don't keep doing this again and again, this endless cycle of recession after recession after recession again and again and again forever oh you couldn't manage to get shot next time